0: Welcome to the first episode of Faith and Culture Conversations. Here at the outset, the question we need to answer is, why? Or what's the purpose for creating a podcast of Christian conversations? The short answer is that we see a need to help Christians navigate the intersection of Christian belief and cultural influence. This is a bold statement to make, but I think it's uncontestable. And it's that at no other point in history has humanity enjoyed instantaneous access to more information and ideas than today. In fact, it's not even close. And it's not simply the case that we have unprecedented access to information, but it's also the case that information has unprecedented access to us. But that's a conversation for another episode. We believe the enemy is after your mind and heart, and as shepherds, we're jumping into the fray. So we invite you, the listener, to come along with us as we discuss important issues where the faith and the culture around us are colliding. In today's episode, we discuss the challenges Christians face in thinking well for Jesus in the 21st century. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the conversation. Well, let me introduce the guys. First of all, Van Minter is here with us today. He's a husband, father of three girls, one married, two in college at Texas A&M and Baylor, grandfather to three. Is that right, Van? Yeah, three. Graduate of Howard Payne University and Southwestern Seminary, where he received his master's in religious education. Van has been faithfully serving in ministry for over 35 years, which makes him pretty old, and currently <laughs> serves as the lead pastor of community life at Lake Ridge Bible Church. He's also six foot eight and would like for you all to know that. <laughs> Kyle Wisdom is also here with us today. He's also happily married. He's a graduate of Criswell College and is about to wrap up the THM degree from Dallas Theological Seminary with a focus in worship and media arts. Is that what it's called? Worship and media Yeah,
1: media and worship arts. Media it's and worship arts. lots of names, but okay. that's where we're at now.
0: He's currently serving as the student minister at Lake Ridge, having set aside what would no doubt have been a very successful career in the stage or on the screen. <laughs> Maybe so. Keith Lowry more affectionately known to me as Dad, is married and the father of four children, three still surviving, the grandfather of eight, right? Is it eight? Is it up to eight?
2: Yes, it is.
0: He's still gainfully employed and engaged in a storied career as a software engineer, has north of four dozen technology patents in his name. He's a Colson Fellow and in his spare time publishes articles in Touchstone magazine, a journal for for mere Christianity. Keith currently serves as the elder of EnReach at Lake Ridge. Last and certainly least, my name is Ben Lowry. I'm also happily married with two marvelous children. I'm a graduate of Criswell College and twice of Dallas Theological Seminary, where I earned a master's in historical theology and a doctor of ministry degree, which means I'm the kind of doctor that can't do any good. (laughs) I currently serve as lead pastor of ministry development at Lake Ridge Bible Church. All right, guys. So to get the conversation for the day started, Henry Ford, who lived late... 19th century, early 20th century, is often quoted as having said, thinking is the hardest work there is, which is probably the reason so few engage in it. So, in what sense is that still true today, and what challenges do Christians in particular face in that regard?
1: I think it's certainly still true. Um, One of my favorite Robert Frost poems talks about people who are watching the ocean they're sort of watching ships go by, and they're sort of doing nothing, and he describes them as people who think neither far out nor in deep, um, and I think that's kind of where we are culturally. We occupy ourselves with a lot of thoughts, so we we uh, look at a lot of articles, at least we read the headlines <laughs> on Yahoo and Google, um, and we talk about a lot of things, but we we're not really dedicated to the discipline of thinking deeply about them, and we'd prefer... Something like a slogan or something like a headline, rather than trying to really get into an argument or a discussion with
3: someone. Yeah, so. I think um, you know the reason I think that's still true today is because we don't want to take the time that thinking requires. We'd rather be told what to think, you know. So whether it's the uh, a news article in the information age that we live in, it's just you know at your fingertips, and so to think for yourself or to like I said, to to really take time and probably some quiet solitude and do some serious thinking um, about the things that are being talked about today. Um, You know, it's going to require a a discipline of, um, you know, taking some time aside and thinking through these things um, and and not let somebody else really do the
2: thinking for you. There's sort of a corollary quote I think, that came from medicine, or at least it's attributed to him, uh, in in which he said, um, people often don't recognize opportunity because it's dressed in overalls and looks like hard work. (laughs) Uh, I think, um, I don't think people are predisposed against thinking, but I think there's some structural things happening in our culture, even particularly maybe in the area of technology that mitigate against it, and that is, um, distractedness. I think, um, there's a, there's a lot of technology and a lot of business models in the technology space that are attention oriented and designed to draw your attention away from what you yourself would be thinking about and onto things that kind of a table that's set for you regarding what your mind should be focused on. And I think that it it creates a challenge for everyone, not just Christians, but certainly for Christians in terms of thinking well uh, because of the distractedness and the attention-grabbing sort of model that um, technology brings into our lives. And I, I think you see this with
3: our kids today, too, right? I mean, it's hard for anybody to, i mean, I, I'm noticing this more and more of your, your college-age, uh, high school-age kids, for them to look you and I and just have a conversation because— to your point, I think uh, their heads are buried in, in a phone, and it, it's more of just being distracted by something, and it's hard for them just to engage and even process what you're trying to talk about, and and so uh, thinking in, in that context is very difficult, I think, for them. Yeah, but I wouldn't call it an, a generational
1: problem simply because the people I see most active and um, engaged in frivolities on like Facebook are actually a lot of older generations as well. Yeah. You see well, a lot got of people. Time on their hands. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it. I think the the youth have grown up with it, and so it's they're more native to it. They're yeah. more they're engrossed in it at every level. Um, but I think everybody's sort of trapped in this cycle of I don't I don't want to have to work to pay attention to something. I want something to jump out at me. You know. So it's harder to pay attention to the book that's on your lap if your phone is dinging. Yeah. <laughs> you well, know, in I, your
0: ear. I, yeah, but I. I think there's also a, a sense in which the younger generation this whole the whole question of technology and the way ideas are presented it's built the infrastructure of the way their minds work you know they think in terms of scrolling and you know bite-sized information and um, it, it's a it's more of a challenge like for the older generation, technology and the way, the way we typically engage with information it came late in their own mental development. Um, so, so they maybe there is some kind of a maybe they're entitled to some frivolity on on the, <laughs> yeah. on, the on the internet. It's Grandma's not as, a meme not factory, as great. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, Jesus told Christians, um, told all his followers to love the Lord their God with love the Lord their God with all their minds, um, with all their minds, so to speak. So, what what is it that that entails um, to love the Lord our God with our mind? And why would the way that we consume information today possibly mitigate our ability to do that?
3: I think to love the Lord with all your mind, it's a, it's a filter by which we receive information, you know, things that we read today. Um, so when Paul talks about uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, you know, the more we grow in Christ and, and study the Word of God— um, I see it as a filter that I take information uh, through in order to to decide what I'm going to latch on to and what I'm going to reject as far as, you know, being valid or or something that I should pay attention to. Um, so. Yeah, and
1: it's uh, 2 Corinthians 10 uh, verse 5 talks about taking every thought captive.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And to your word about structuring, what structures our mind? Not just what are we thinking about, But what's setting the boundaries, setting the categories? Um, So when we think about truth, um, whose definition of truth are we using? I think loving the Lord with your mind says Mm. God defines that category for me. Um, God's the one who decides uh, what true beauty means. God decides what a good relationship is. Um, And so if God's the one who's sort of defining the categories and giving you the structure of your thoughts, um, I think that's more important sometimes even than, to your point, the content of what individual thoughts are all the Mm. time
0: yeah you know you, you guys mentioned uh, this has been picked up on a few times here, but this the um, the shallow nature of our thinking today. We've all got very strong opinions formed from very little information. <laughs> um, and and you know this is the nature of writing headlines. You know, headlines are are designed to be inflammatory. We use the most provocative words that we can in a headline because we know it's going to grab someone's attention. But the argument itself is nuanced, at least it ought to be, you know, because the truth is notoriously complex. Often, um, you know, complex systems are are sort of hard to diagnose, and getting to the bottom of any social issue or um, or, or even a biblical issue often requires thinking across a, a variety of genres and and topics and issues, and it's complex. Um, Often, the truth, I don't think, could be fit to 140 characters or less, you know? Or
1: into two pictures with captions on them, like right. a yeah, meme. Like, or...
0: a, a meme can tell you something of the truth, but it doesn't tell you the, the the whole truth. It sort of captures our attitude about the truth more than anything else, probably. Um, and that's where I think
1: the mediums become very important, because mediums privilege certain kinds of communication. So you you brought up Twitter without naming it, maybe intentionally, so we, <laughs> we don't get screwed. Uh, crawled by something um, from Twitter, but uh, all the mediums have sort of a type of communication they prefer. Right. So you know, Instagram is very image-based, um, which has its own issues. You know, how do right. you communicate a complex truth um, with a picture you took on your phone? Right. <laughs> um, right. Or even you know, we talk about you talk about protests, something that our culture is really dove into with gusto over the last several years, you can only fit so much thought, especially complex thought into what you fit on a cardboard sign or what you chant through a microphone
3: um, That's why I kept my MySpace account so I could just type all that I wanted <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah you good. can pretty much guarantee you don't have any visitors it's funny. Oh, but he can think deep thoughts all by uh, yeah. himself <laughs>
0: but, No <laughs> interruption You know, Kyle, to your point about protest there's a, um, there's a sense in which because because the the wider culture is more of a godless culture, there's sort of a permeating um, atheism, I think, to the culture, not even really convictional atheism, just sort of accidental atheism. Um, th- there, We have to replace a biblical worldview with some kind of a moral construct. The culture itself wants to create some kind of a list of do's and don'ts. Um, humans are are moral beings generally, and so um, I think this is one of the challenge, cr- challenges Christians run into is because the culture is providing their own moral framework for many of the discussions that uh, Christ himself addressed that Christians know to be addressed in scripture, but but the culture's explanations for these things are often less than um, what what the truth would want us to understand about the issue itself. Mm-hmm. Um, does, does that make sense? Yeah.
1: Well, I think that also cuts against sort of what people would like to believe about our emotions, our beliefs, and our thoughts. They want to sort of throw all those into different categories and say, well, what I think and what I feel and what I believe can sort of all be divorced from each other. You know, It's the reason why you can have someone go to church on Sunday, go to school a different day, um, and live these completely different lives and have these completely different um, views about how to conduct themselves in those areas. Because they're like, well, that's what I think about this, but you know, what I believe over here, um, we'd like to think that. That's
0: a weird. That's a weird individual who 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 can do that. You know, yeah. But you're, but you're you're right. I, I suspect.
2: I think the other thing that I keep seeing in in all of this is that the 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 environment in which we're swimming right now really discourages introspection and encourages viewing all of the things you should be concerned about as out there and, if possible, the fault of someone else. <laughs> yeah, whenever and wherever possible. the fault yeah, of Yeah, and so, I, you know, recently I, was, I stumbled across this um, letter to the editor that G.K. Chesterton wrote in 1905 to the Daily News, and it was an answer to the question, what's wrong with the world? And he said this, the answer to the question, what is wrong, is or should be, I am wrong. Until a man can give that answer, his idealism is only a hobby. And I think what you see in the, the broader culture, and I, honestly, this is even happening among evangelicals. You, you see a lot of evangelical voices these days who are, who are uh, writing these pieces and posting them online and complaining mostly about other evangelicals. And whether it's their hypocrisy or their, you know, political leanings or whatever it is, the problem is always out there. I've talked to a lot of, you know, young adults who, um, who sort of feed on this um, view that the biggest problems uh, faced by the Church are other people. And, and they, they don't have a natural bent sometimes toward— looking inside and saying, maybe I need to fix me. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is kind of what Jordan Peterson talks about, clean your bedroom. I mean, if you want to change the world, clean your own bedroom, you Mm -hmm. know, and that's appealing at one level, but for a lot of people, it's off-putting because the assumption is you need to fix yourself, right? And I think this is a challenge with our current moment because this outrage that's cultivated is always outrage at some failure on someone else's part, never on our own. Mm -hmm. You know, we've fallen pretty far down the moral um, ladder as a
0: society when we have to quote Michael Jackson lyrics to right. sort of correct ourselves. But, you know, he, he's saying, I'm looking at the man in the mirror. You right. know, it's kind of to your point. There's a cultural Even he knew there. that much. Even, even Michael Jackson knew not to blame everybody else for his problems. Right.
1: Um, and so I would, I would ask, though, because we're trying to say the truth is often more complex than mm-hmm. simply something you can slogan. Mm-hmm. So how do you avoid making... What I think is an appropriate <clears throat> emphasis on personal responsibility, not just the opposite slogan of the problem is always someone else.
0: So, so there's right. a corollary to this whole issue of pushing the fault or the blame or whatever, the moral outrage to, the, to, to, to those outside your own uh, purview or your own world. I think and, – and, and I think it's this, this, tent, this temptation to globalize um, moral issues and to um, abstractify things that – um, that can be handled. That should be handled at, at a personal level. So, for instance, um, you know, there's a, there's a huge conversation going on in the culture about race, and so what we'd like to do is sort of globalize the race question um, to where you know Neil Postman talked about this in Entertaining Ourselves to Death. It's a book I would recommend everybody read who hasn't read um, read Neil Postman's Entertaining Ourselves to Death. But he talked about the the uh, peculiarity of the the evening news, how suddenly the problems in a part of the world that aren't even remotely connected to your sphere of influence become very personal to you. They're brought into your home, into your living room. Um, but we flit from some catastrophe in Uzbekistan to um, a Kellogg cereal commercial, you know, in the matter of seconds. We, we jump from topic to topic. So anyway, I, I, I think that that doesn't help us think better. That sort of just forces the issue outside of us, and it globalizes it Sort of removes the necessity of taking personal responsibility for um, what I think, and more specifically, do um, whatever the issue may be. So, I, I think you could oversimplify in the direction of personal responsibility, but that should be our starting point.
1: Hmm. Maybe a better default than right <laughs> the other a, direction. A better,
0: a better default starting position sh- than um, it's everyone else's fault would be to look at yourself. Mm-hmm. For and if you're trying to diagnose a problem, you know. Um, C.S. Lewis, he wrote the introduction to a, a translation of Athanasius's On the Incarnation. Athanasius was an early church theologian um, who wrote a book about Jesus' incarnation, and uh, C.S. Lewis wrote an introduction to one of those translations. And you could buy the book just for C.S. Lewis's introduction. To it because it's awesome and it's hard to find actually, but I think you can get the PDF of Lewis's introduction online if you Google for it. Um, but one of the one of the things C.S. Lewis says is it's important for us to be reading old books, um, because it 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 isn't that they're not likely to go wrong. It's just that they weren't likely to go wrong in the same directions that we are today. So you you, you sort of broaden your perspective across the centuries when you do this. I think that's one of the other challenges for Christians today thinking well is we've got a tendency to um, prioritize and privilege uh, the contemporary, the immediate, rather than to think back across the centuries and gain perspective from the people who came before us. There's almost even a contempt toward them like They've somehow botched it, and we might be the first ones to actually get it right, you know.
1: Yeah, like uh, Jesus was floundering in his creation of the Christian faith until this very yeah. moment.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, this all gets back to the, the current cultural um, presupposition that youth is better than age. Um, you know, uh, Carl Truman talks about this in his book. Uh, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, when he talks about sort of the implications of Rousseau's view that uh, society corrupts people who would otherwise be innocent is that the younger you are, the less corrupt you are. That's sort of how it plays out in practice. And um, it's interesting because the, you see this everywhere, actually. There's an there's a article right now on the Gospel Coalition website written by a young guy, young father, Of three, apparently, who is a Gen Z um, guy, goes to Wheaton, and he's written this article on the five things, or the things that frustrate Gen Gen Z Christians, and lo and behold, most of them have to do with older believers. (laughs) Um, And of course, and none of them have to do with the Gen Z themselves, right? They're all sort of this outward frustration at other people, and in particular, previous generations of believers. And um, sort of setting aside the myopia of that point of view uh, as a young person, uh, this notion that people who came before us are, are a problem and not a source of wisdom is, I think, widespread even within, among believers.
3: Yeah, it's like that article I, I think I shared with you guys before. But there's a church that asked all members 55 and older to leave yeah. for at least a period of a year, and then they could reapply for membership. Uh, but they wanted to, and the reason for doing this, they wanted to have a refresh, reset, and just kind of reestablish what they wanted, felt like the church ought to look like, and, and focus on. And so during this one year away. And not guaranteeing membership back into the church when they reapplied, they still wanted those older members to support the church so the ministries could continue. <laughs> and so well, you kinda, of course we yeah. don't need your input, we just need your money, you know. And yeah. so uh, Yeah, that's that's well, a dangerous thing, I think.
1: And it goes it goes to sort of what you mentioned, Ben, about sort of the accidental beliefs we have. And I think people have stumbled into the accidental belief that we're sort of uh progressing towards this ultimate utopia. Like, the longer that the world exists, we're sort of shaving off all of these bad ideas. You know, it's sort of like a Hegelian uh, synthesis idea. Things are getting better. Yeah. The longer we go, the more human knowledge we've accumulated. Um, And I just have no... I have no Christian expectation that that's how things are going to go.
0: Yeah, there's, it's really just the same old bad ideas trumped up in new clothes. Cyclically, yeah. I mean, yeah. it comes and goes. But Solomon it, knew mm-hmm. something about that when he said, there's nothing new under the sun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, It might look new, um, but it's, it's just undergone some sort of weird plastic surgery. So what, what, what responsibility does the church have? Um, I think for a long time we've outsourced this whole development of a Christian worldview to the academy or to the university. Hmm. And the church has kind of um, taken on the role of the expository preaching, go through the books of the Bible, and that's all necessary. That's, that's central, I think, to our role as a church. But what, what, what else can we be doing to help bridge the gap um, between Christians who know a lot about the Bible but may not necessarily understand its relevance to the wider cultural and the issues that that they're facing in in the world.
2: I think, think, you know, we face some unique challenges in discipling people within the Church today because not just because there's an adversarial culture—off and on, there's always been an adversarial culture—but the problem we face is different today, and this is really related to the immersion— the cultural immersion that continuous communication uh, in our pockets enables for people. Mm -hmm. So you may spend two to three hours a week being discipled by your flesh-and-blood church community, but you're spending, you know, 12 to 14 hours a day being discipled by social media. And so I think one of the things we need to be doing, and I think we are doing uh, at Lakeridge, is think intentionally about... How do we inject Lake Ridge's voice into the conversation that our members are having, um, and and other believers, even who are having even beyond potentially Lake Ridge, uh, the conversation they're having in this sustained engagement that people sort of swim in today, mm-hmm. uh, with you know ever-present communication and interruption from voices that are not their flesh and blood in church communities. So I think we need to be injecting ourselves in that conversation and providing things that can help people, um, hear a different perspective, uh, than the one that they're, you know, sort of getting 12 hours a day. Yeah. I think, I think even
0: in addition to that, um, the church has had the luxury for a long time of being, um, interdependent upon the wider world for, Um, career development, um, uh, you know, our our path towards success was the same as everybody else's. It was go to college, get a degree, all those kinds of things. And there may be another episode where we talk about this issue uh, more broadly, but I I do believe that Rod Dreher and and the Benedict Option is at least right about the need for Christians in a world like this to become more interdependent upon one another. The, The... the infrastructure of Christian community needs to grow stronger in the way that we prepare ourselves, not only to think within the world, but um, to live and sustain ourselves uh, within the wider world. So the church is going to have to—so for instance, my own uh, my own wife is exploring the need that a lot of families are, are exploring right now to find a better educational source than traditional schooling, because traditional schooling— um, in so many areas, not, 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 you wouldn't say this flatly is the case across every school everywhere, but, but, um, by and large, families are growing more and more worried about the state of traditional schooling, um, in the terms of the ideas that their kids are being asked to imbibe, and, uh, just the real absence of any sort of Christian worldview being taught there, um, so it's not so much that they're not just – it's not so much that in schools kids aren't getting a Christian worldview. It's that they're actually getting something antithetical to a Christian worldview in many cases. Well, and that's
1: where I feel some of my responsibilities as a as youth director pretty keenly because one of the things I'm learning is I have to – I can't trust that they've been taught how to do good research, good thinking all the time. So – You know, we have to talk about logical fallacy sometimes with youth because no one's no one's telling them this Um, or just the the ability to recognize when they're being taught a worldview to actually have the awareness to go. Wait a minute. That sounds like an ultimate claim about reality. This isn't about math anymore. You know, Mm -hmm. this isn't about Mm -hmm. um, what classification of animal and science we're in. This is a worldview that you're they're trying to give me. And so training them to have those antenna up and be able to diagnose what they're being taught at more than just, this is what they're saying,
2: but what worldviews is coming
1: from. Well, I mean, think that's
2: going to be huge. Yeah, even, I mean, you said, hey, this is not math anymore, this is a worldview, but even math is being used to teach a worldview. Um, you know, we're manipulated by numbers, and I I think even providing some kind of how to guide on how to interpret uh, numerical statistical data that people are being fed in support of antithetical worldviews is mm-hmm. really, really important because routinely uh, the media misuses numbers in an advocacy way, and I think a lot of Christians don't understand enough about the use of numbers to perceive the the slant that the numbers are providing. Very often, if you stick a number next to some statement, it it's sort of kind of a stolen valor kind <laughs> of thing. It, it's sort of borrowing from the authority of numbers in in service to a particular point of view. And I think that, that um, being able to recognize that is important.
3: Yeah, talking about authority figures and... Uh, who's influencing our children. You know, Hattie, my youngest, is at Baylor right now. And so in one of her fam, it's uh, the class is about family relationships. And they've, uh, you know, part of the textbook is already, you know, talking about the homosexual relationships between people and, and how that ought to be something that, pers- you know, how you pursue those relationships and how you engage within the family unit if you have somebody that, is in that lifestyle, and you know, and so here I am telling my my daughter, listen, just because you have a professor that may even have that leaning at a Christian university, uh, don't take it as the final authority. You know, let's remember what God's word says. And so I'm I'm still coaching and, and discipling my my daughter uh, in a setting that I think maybe a couple of decades ago you wouldn't necessarily be as concerned over that uh, taking place in the classroom, but here it sits, and so. Um anyway, it's it's a never-ending challenge.
0: I think the church is um I don't know if it's culpable in this. I mean, everyone's got their own responsibility to engage with the issues intelligently, but the church for a long time has offered um pithy little reductions of the truth. You know, even on Christian theology, it's like we 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 have tried very hard for a long time as the church to boil down the truth to it's most simplistic. Uh, this is all you have to believe type of mentality, rather than rather than growing growing in our understanding of the truth and pursuing a fully fledged, full bodied understanding of God or the Church or the world or creation to recreation, whatever the case may be. Um, we, we've offered instead punchlines or bumper sticker theology, um, and and so in, in some sense, I'm not sure we've done a good job in the church at preparing our people to look for something better than a bumper sticker perspective on some kind of social issue. So all you have to do is provide a number, you know, and, all, and we're willing to accept the authority of one, one particular professor um, if, if what he says seems, seems right. We, we're, not, we're not conditioned, I don't think, to look more deeply um, underneath the surface or even across the disciplines. Um, yeah, because it's, it's like if
3: they, if they say these things with conviction, they've got it's got to be true, right? Right. And then that's yeah. why they have to learn to think better than that is. Don't yeah.
0: So well, social media is yeah. particularly bad about this because what's the, you know, the, the 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 moral majority on social media establishes itself on the basis of the most people being the most outraged at the same time, right? That's how the, that's how moral standards and conclusions are reached. As many people as can get really mad about one thing all at the same time, the the court of public opinion has been set, like the decision is in at that point. And it's really difficult for Christians to step back and say, no, I'm going to take the path of James. How about instead of being quick to speak and quick to become angry, you know, which is the rules of social media, that's how you win. Instead, let's do what James said and be slow to speak and slow to become angry because as the proverb says the first person to give an account seems right until a second comes to examine him. And so it's important for us I think as Christians to step back and and be slower to reach the outraged conclusions of uh, of wider culture, you
1: know. So you've you've touched on a question I've had about kind of this process. So a lot of times we want to bring in a lot of these other disciplines, you know, sort of Um, looking towards gaining more information both not only across time but across discipline. Um, How do we know when we've sort of trespassed outside of allowing those disciplines to inform our thoughts versus we're sort of allowing those disciplines to conform our thoughts on the Bible? You know, so you talked about James. It's like James should inform our discussion of all these other disciplines. How do we know when we sort of flip the equation? And now we're allowing those disciplines to color James for us. I think the big area that we've talked about before is a lot of this discussion of uh, critical race theory. We're Mm -hmm. sort of allowing a discipline that's um, outside the Bible to speak back into our Bibles. Mm -hmm. Um, And so how do we know when we're doing that and when we're trying to think more broadly about things?
0: I would – I mean the first thing that comes to my mind um, is patience. To be patient, I think uh, the the quick conclusion sometimes if you find – if someone's offering you a univariate explanation – in other words, if someone really is trying to boil down the entire issue of, um, let's say, for instance, since we've brought it up, the race question to really the color of someone's skin. Like if that's really what defines somebody, that's a univariate explanation. That explains every other aspect of their life, how much money they make, what they believe about something, whether they're guilty or about something or not, whether they've lived their privileged existence or not. You can know all of that about an individual based on one thing, the color of their skin. That's a univariate explanation. Christians should be automatically suspicious.
3: Yeah, and I think that's an instance where you can be quick to speak and quick to become righteously angry. Over something because it's not true. We know it's not true.
0: Van, that's not what the Bible says. <laughs> well, <laughs>
3: I, I think, yeah. Well,
0: I I know what you're saying. Yeah. I, there's there's a there's a time when y- yeah you, you don't. You, th-
2: it's possible to have clarity. That's exactly and to know right. What's what, right? What's true? Yeah, and, it, and then respond accordingly. Right. Right. right.
3: right. It doesn't necessarily require a being quick to listen because you've heard enough at that point mm-hmm. because it, you know mm-hmm. it's going against the truth.
0: Right. I think, Kyle, the other part of that answer that comes to my mind, so when I say be patient, that's one. Uh, you know, for instance, in criminal cases, you need to let the officials do their jobs be- and not reach sort of righteously <laughs> indignant conclusions based on a hashtag campaign. That's a bad idea. So so be patient and let the case play out. The other the other thing I think is, kind of going back to what C.S. Lewis says, read across the ages. You know, um, if if this is... Um, If this is an idea that's brand new to your time and place, and it's coloring the way that you're viewing all of Scripture, there may be a problem, right? I think at least a red flag should go up. Hmm. And then I would ask this question, what's the source? I would question the origin of the idea itself. Is it born of the light, or is it born of the darkness? There's a lot of Christians today on the critical race theory question who have found utility in some of the terms that get thrown out by the critical theorists and by this whole intersectionality idea. And maybe another, another episode on that on, on those issues specifically to, to flesh out what those terms mean and the kinds of terms they're using. But it, it, Christians have found utility in it because they think that these terms can help us do our job as a church to help address the animosity between different groups But I don't – I think that Christians ought to be slow to adopt terms for their utility, um, especially if they're born of an atheistic worldview because it's entirely possible that those terms are the fruit of an atheistic worldview, not sort of accidentally connected to an atheistic worldview. And we borrow them um, to our uh, um, demise. I think, eventually. Eventual. Yeah, and
2: I think we're, we live in a time where it's a really popular thing to do to make broad, sweeping generalizations about entire groups of people, in part, like you were saying, based on the color of their skin, a univariate kind of explanation. But even the broad, sweeping generalizations themselves, even if the basis for making those is multivariate and it's not just related to skin color, um, it, particularly if you're talking about g- group motivations – it's really hard to characterize that. There's a, there's a kind of a hot video online talking about CRT related to this from Phil Vischer, the VeggieTales veggie guy, and he's done a series of posts on, on, uh, on race. And he, he's, he's a great storyteller, but he, he, he actually makes things up and attributes assumptions about what is animating the thinking of large groups of people based on their skin color. And so he'll say, for instance, that, that all the pathologies you see in, say, urban black communities is a result of hopelessness. Well, there's no doubt that somebody in that community, for whatever reason, may be hopeless. But to sort of ascribe hopelessness to an entire universe of people merely on the basis of their skin color and without any sort of underlying data that you're offering to show where you came up with those numbers, what he's doing there is he's crafting a story. He's not he's not looking into what's real. And, um, and it's not that it's not even a good, a fun story to listen to. Phil's a neat guy. He's, he's fun to listen to, but it's just not true because the pathologies that exist in many communities, if you look at the data, are much more challenging to quantify and make broad-brush, sweeping statements about. Um, You know, it's not hopelessness that is the source of fatherlessness within, you know, the urban black community, let's say, uh, where 70-ish percent of children are born into homes without dads. And so um, if you're serious about these kinds of things, you can't go by stories. As a believer, you can't, you got to recognize the sweeping generalizations for what they are, and and then look deeper, dig deeper mm-hmm. uh, into what what's really animating the thing that people are outraged about, mm. whatever it is.
1: And so much of—to talk about the way information is communicated now, we have conflated so deeply now um, the more traditionally objective, traditionally investigative forms of information gathering, so like journalism— yeah. um, uh, all these other types of of communication that were designed to give us the truth uh, sort of unvarnished and you know with as much objectivity as we can muster with storytelling with yeah. the artful yeah. forms of communication yeah. to the point now where uh, even very originally you know very reputable organizations that used to deal in journalism now sort of unashamedly deal in story because they know that that's a way to convince people, it's a way to persuade people but it doesn't have all the um, sharp edges of having to say things that are always and demonstrably true.
0: The triumph of anecdote over analysis.
1: Yeah. You know, sentiment, so we can, sentiment over yeah. information. So we right. can tell a really sad story from someone's perspective with the right, right. music underneath it, and somehow that trumps.
0: Yeah, well, any there's a special knowledge uh, associated with someone's experience, right? And, and so to what level do we elevate that special knowledge? Some people would say it's unquestioning. It's inerrant. A person's own experience and perspective should be, should go unchallenged by, by, and and if you challenge someone's own perspective of their, of their experience, then you're, you're doing something cruel, you know? Because that would be. You're, you're white-splaining or mansplaining or. Or, or erasing them
1: or removing their dignity because you're going to question, hey, maybe your perception of your own experience is incorrect.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I had a – so when I was a kid um,
1: – Is this going to be a, a story, an anecdote? This is Are an gonna... anecdote,
0: and I don't <laughs> want anyone to question it. Okay? Um, this, so, But when I was a kid, uh, I, I was walking my dog one day in the neighborhood, and a guy in a white vehicle pulled up next to me on the street. And the guy, I was probably 10 years old, 8 years old, something like that. The guy, the guy asked, rolls down his window and asked me whether I had seen a dog just like that one, okay, because he needed help finding his dog. And I was terrified. I mean, I was absolutely petrified. The reason I was absolutely petrified was because at school, earlier that day, they had sat all of us second graders down. This was back in the 80s, Right. They'd sat all of us second-graders down and given us um, a crash course in what to look for if you're about to be kidnapped, (laughs) okay? This was at school. And one of the things you look for is a male in a white vehicle who asks you about a dog that he's lost that had literally been covered that morning in class, okay, as a second-grader. And so I'm convinced. Uh, I'm viewing all all of reality, the entire world through the mythology of... Men in white vehicles looking for dogs are out to get you. Like, they're going to kidnap you. And here was a man in a white car ready to kidnap me, right, for all I knew. I was petrified. Well, I told him I hadn't seen the dog. He drove off. I went home. That I don't know if you remember this. I went home and told my parents that this guy had pulled over and asked me this question and... And had then gotten out of his car and walked up to me and my dog had to start barking. And I mean, it was just in the nick of time. The guy gets back in his car because he's scared off by – I created an entire story narrative around this mythology that only barely – that only barely reflected the truth of the situation. And it wasn't until probably a few years later that I was no longer afraid of being kidnapped. I sort of looked back and said, boy, I was wrong about – I was wrong about that. Sometimes, in other words, that's a really sort of stupid illustration <laughs> for how viewing the world through a, a, a flawed narrative um, can color your perspective, and actually, something you believe to be true isn't true. Um, in today's world, those kinds of those kinds of uh, narratives or experiences go unquestioned often.
3: I think the most Interesting part about that story is you didn't <laughs> reference Lord of the Rings one time. So that's, uh, that's pretty good.
0: We're going to do another episode just on Lord of the Rings. <laughs> We're going to need
1: at least three episodes, I think. Yeah. That. So, so that leads me to a question then. When do you know when you've reached a position of conviction? So you're, you're looking at the world, you're trying to understand it correctly, you're, uh, you're trying the best you can to look at the data to try to reach conclusion. When have you spent enough time being slow to speak, quick to listen, and when is the time to maybe to Van's point? When's the time to become righteously angry and say, "This is the position I'm taking on this issue," and I'm gonna I'm gonna put some skin in the game now.
0: Um, I think that are, are you asking when does conviction happen?
1: Yeah, I guess so. If if the whole point, if what we're trying to ask people to do is think deeper, think slower, think ac- go across the ages, mm-hmm. go across the disciplines. Mm-hmm. That's a long, deep process, and I think my, my personality, I think my generation in particular, we're very good at living in cynicism, living in, well, I'm going to take my time to decide what I believe, um, and we want to sort of live in this world of, well, I'll decide later. When do we reach the point where we say, I know enough now, I'm going to stand on this position?
0: I, I'm not sure. I, so you, the, other, the others of you will have to engage on this as well, but... Um... I don't know if it is a win and I don't, what I don't mean to say is that the truth is unknowable. I mean, we can know the truth, right? You shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Um, So I I don't mean, I don't mean to sort of be postmodern about it and say, we can't, we can't know the truth and everybody's truth is their own truth, but I'm not sure it's a win in the sense of, um, well, after you've done a, b, c, and d and accomplished one, two, three, and four, then you've arrived at conviction. Um, but I do think that there's a reason the scriptures tell us to, to listen to our elders. Um, I, I think sometimes conviction can be taught and it can be caught um, with intergenerational uh, engagement on important issues. It's one of the things that the church could do better at, rather than sort of breaking down groups by their age group and all those kinds of things and then demographically discipling them, I I think more intergenerational impact would sort of... I think, in other words, convictions can be caught intergenerationally. They're contagious. Um, And so there's something about that that's good, if the conviction is good. There's something about it that's bad, if the conviction is bad. Um, But I don't think that, for instance, the younger generations have to necessarily flounder. There's something that they can do if they adopt a position of humility um, to, to, to garner conviction, and it's by listening well to those who've gone before them and being informed uh, by their perspective.
2: I think when you get the next sort of outrageous point of view that you're supposed to feel uh, either virtuous about in yourself or mad at someone else for their own failures, I think either you understand how that point of view is addressed in Scripture or you don't. And if you don't, you need to recognize, I don't really know what the Word of God says to this issue, and I need to make that investment before I form my opinions about this thing. And also, you you can make that investment in Scripture, but um, the Scripture also advises you to seek wise counsel. Mm-hmm. And so you either have sought wise counsel, or mm-hmm. you haven't on some of these subjects, right? And so if you have made the investment to understand what Scripture says, and if you've S- sought wise counsel from, you know, knowledgeable believers, uh, leaders in your spiritual community. Uh, at that point, I think you can have some confidence that you've made the necessary investment to engage uh, or form some level <clears throat> of conviction about whatever it is that you're dealing with. I think too often, though, we, we have this knee-jerk reaction. This, this shows up. A lot of it's designed to make you feel virtuous, Without the cost of virtue, you know, and so if something shows up that's either flattering to you or, or getting you to be ready to condemn someone else, then take a hard look at, um, at what the Word of God has to say, and do recognize when you haven't done that. Yeah. So
3: You you know, we keep quoting: "Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry." And in the context of this passage, James says. Don't just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer of it. And he says, any man who just listens to the word but doesn't do what it says is like the man that looks in the mirror and walks away, forgetting what he he's heard. And but he says, but instead, uh, the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he'll be blessed in what he does. And I think that's where the conviction and and the knowing comes in because you've you've you've. Meditated on the Word of God, you've pursued it, and that's how uh, truth, knowledge of the truth, comes in, and I think gives us that foundation to uh, say with clarity, you know, this is wrong. I don't need, I don't need uh, to spend more time wondering uh, how I should react to this. The Word of God's made it pretty clear, you know. So,
0: yeah, I I also believe there's a challenge to you. Know, so, um, uh, Pops, you you mentioned this whole idea of seeking the input of wise and respected Christian leaders in the broader Christian community, or you actually said in your own particular Christian community. I think that there's a lot of... Um, we've talked about the globalizing of ideas. There's also a globalizing of the Christian community and in, in the sense that uh, Joe Christian is going to be informed by celebrity pastors and well-known writers or thinkers across the country and even across the globe before he's informed by his own pastors and elders who he's biblically accountable to. You know, and there's a danger in this. Now, those guys may be on point. They may they may be um just as right as anybody else, but at the same time I think we've got to look more closely to home. Um
3: Yeah, because their celebrity status can cause them to veer too and have mm-hmm. you know, a lot of knee-jerk reactions to the topics of the day and they can be very uh, easily misguided.
0: Right. You know, so, so on on this issue, and this is the last thing we'll discuss together today, because there are, I think there is a growing rift in evangelicalism along several different moral fronts. And I believe that the world is defining the terms for us by and large, um, sort of drawing the lines of battle for us, and then Christians are falling on one side or the other. Um, how is it that we should approach contentious issues in order to think Christianly and to love the Lord, our God with our minds? I, I, see the, I see the discourse sort of crumbling from the word go because um, everyone's automatically angry at the other person on the other end of the discussion, whether that's in person, online, over the phone, whatever, over an email. Um, so so at, well, what are some rules that we could follow, some principles we could help guide us in this?
3: So if we, if we go back to the passage we were in yesterday in Second Timothy, you know, Paul's given Timothy this instruction about how to be faithful in preaching the word, and talks about that the word is useful for correcting, rebuking, and encouraging. And then he says, and do this with patience and careful instruction. I think that is something we have to keep in mind as we deal with this, because uh, it will be, uh, I think for many people, a contentious type of conversation uh, upon first hearing. Um, You know, I asked you guys in elder prayer yesterday to pray for a visitor that was going to be here. Um, and had been told in advance the person was lost. I find out after church is over that he was very angry uh, in light of what was preached. And so I talked to uh, my soon-to-be son-in-law. <laughs> so, said, hey, man, how's it going? Because I'd sent him a text after church. Hey, I hope in light of today's message you have a chance to talk to your friend. And he says, we're actually talking right now. He's pretty angry over the myths that you addressed. And uh, so we he called me last night and uh told me how their conversation went and just felt like he was banging his head against a wall trying to help him get his friend to understand that God's word is truth, it doesn't change. And, and so, uh, you know, this, this guy is a really nice guy, you know, uh, very personable, but his, his thinking, his con- convictions have been shaped by just a lot of things of the world and doesn't understand why uh, things like uh, same-sex marriage shouldn't be celebrated, or at least endorsed or welcomed, and um, you know the whole CRT conversation. Uh, he's um, he's just kind of on the bandwagon of those things, and so I just told I told my uh, son-in-law I said, "Listen, be patient, trust the Lord with it, uh, proclaim truth in a loving manner, and let and let the Lord deal with his heart." You know, mm. I think you just have to be patient and walk alongside these people mm-hmm. um, and be willing to revisit those conversations. Uh, it's the point I made yesterday. It's not always a one-and-done deal. Mm. Uh, it's going to take time, and uh, we need to rely on the Lord and the Spirit of God to uh, open eyes and, and convict hearts.
2: Mm. I think it's important to remember in this regard, and I think what you just said sort of reflects the spirit, that we're not competing with people. Right, we're not, we're not in competition to win the argument. Right, right. We're we're vessels. We're we're declaring the truth that we know, mm. uh, and we don't have to have some sort of judgmental delight at the idea of, you know, uh, overcoming this other person. We're not trying to overcome anyone. We're just trying to share the truth. Uh, Francis Schaeffer has this. Thing that he says he was describing in one of his books, uh, the 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 split that occurred at the early part of the 20th century among Presbyterians, and just the the huge conflict that you know kind of continues really even to this day between two different branches of the Presbyterian Church. And uh, he made this comment because he was a you know a young man in the midst of all that. He made this comment in one of his books. He said, "We forgot to part with tears," mm-hmm. and. That's struck me because I think it strikes the right tone about the nature of this conflict. I'm not glad hmm. to be in conflict or, with people over the question of CRT. I'm not glad to right. be in conflict with someone over the question of gay marriage or or whether Christians should endorse and celebrate someone's transgenderism. I'm not glad about that. I have a point of view. I think it's informed by Scripture, and I think if we understand sort of the framing of the— existence of our reality that speaks to these questions and has something to say but i'm not trying to beat somebody or right. exceed anyone right mm-hmm. i mean this is what love is right love is offering these things in an effort to help um and and to illuminate yeah uh not to not to compete yeah i say
3: that all the time to people. are we are we trying to win an argument here or are we trying to just both come to a conclusion on, on truth you know, are we trying to find the truth or see who gets their way?
1: And and what I've found helpful in my conversations with people is in the same way that I don't want to be reduced, I don't want to reduce them. So don't turn them into a slogan. Don't make them yeah. a caricature. I, I ask questions that help me understand you better. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times we all sort of fall back to our battle lines and sort of lob <laughs> these sort of thought grenades at one another. Um without ever seeking to understand each other enough to advance the conversation. Because only when I fully understand where someone's coming from, only when I fully Mm -hmm. understand the position they're trying to occupy, am I going to be able to bring the right dosage of the truth, the right scriptures to convince them? Because Mm -hmm. um, that's when I know where the truth needs to hit them the most.
0: Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's where the opening statement about thinking comes into play. How can I think better and how to engage in these kinds of conversations with people, you know, in a way that uh, would be honoring to the Lord and, and really help, you know,
0: open their eyes. You know, there's there's a, the, the, the question of how we engage with the lost world on these issues, and then there's the question of how do we engage with those we love, where sometimes you feel the pinch all the more um, people within your own families. There's hardly a Christian family in the world, I suspect, who hasn't uh, who isn't divided along these ideological lines in in some corner of their, um, of their family or among their friends. And um, I think one of the things that can be helpful is for us to avoid any terms that short-circuit the conversation. So terms like heresy or heretic, hmm. maybe just lay off that <laughs> for a little while. Um, you know, let the conversation develop. I, Van, I liked what you had to say about being patient in a conversation. We're not used car salesmen, right? We're not trying to get someone to to buy the car within an hour, you know? I mean, like, this may take months. This could take years of dialogue with somebody, you know? And um, we've got to be willing to do that. In other words, prepare for the long haul Mm -hmm. um, in the way that you're talking with somebody rather than, um, to your point, Dad, about trying to win. We're not winning. We're not closing a sale. We're Engaging with people for the long haul—at least we'd like to be.
3: Yeah, it's like Paul said: we're pleading with people to be reconciled to Christ. So much as it
0: depends on us, we're trying to live peaceably with all men. But part of that does mean drawing lines of Christian belief. we, We can't avoid doing that. So I'm not saying don't tell the truth or don't draw hard lines in the sand. We have to. You know, there's there's this idea that we should leave the conversation open. You know, don't. We're not saying that. We're we're saying keep the conversation going but draw hard lines in the sand about what truth is along the way.
3: Yeah, it makes me think of Nathan confronting David over his sin and how he tells this this story that really opened David. I mean, David was burning with anger, and then Nathan says, and see, that's you. And so it's like David had no argument against it at that point. And and again, it's not that Nathan was trying to win an argument with David. It's just that he was very... uh, the tact that he took in approaching that situation I thought was
0: just awesome. So if that yeah. conversation had been recorded for YouTube, I guarantee you the the um the little clip on YouTube, the little mm-hmm. image you see, what's that called? What's that little in- the, the thumbnail. thumbnail. The yeah. thumbnail would read something like Nathan destroyed David <laughs> with this, <laughs> right. you know. Right. Yeah. Or, like pull, would...
3: or pulled a sneaky one on David. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um
1: but the image we get of of the church in the New Testament is the one who Goes and finds a brother who is walking away from the truth and leads them back. Yeah. You know, that's the goal. It's yeah. the person who takes someone and turns them from lies so that they can turn back towards the truth and find transformation in yeah, what the Jude, gospel is.
0: Jude tells us to have mercy on those who doubt. Yeah. That's a different heart, I think. Yeah. Than than to try to beat them down or to win them or to score a score a point on social media. Social media corrupts these conversations because it's all there's a gallery, right? When you're t- when you're having a conversation like this on social media, you're all too keenly aware of the gallery. Yeah. That's liking each other's counterpoints and, and points. You know. Yeah. Right.
2: It's like a schoolyard. Yeah. Fight. Yeah. Right. Well guys, I
0: think what we're after at the end of the day is an ongoing conversation amongst the four of us. With We'll bring in guests along the way as well um, on a variety of topics that we believe uh, Christians engage with, um, both in God's Word, in their own Christian communities, and in the wider culture. But I think some of the conversations are hard to have. Some, sometimes people are afraid to engage on these issues. It's not safe any longer to um, to engage on these issues publicly, and so hopefully the conversations we have together will help people mm-hmm. um, as they as they take part, whether they're listening in their cars or together with friends or whatever um, we're just glad that you're part of the conversation with us guys, any last words this this morning
3: I just fight the good fight i mean it's um you know it's a it's a journey and I think we just need, like you said earlier, we're we're in it for the long haul, and I think the attitude of heart is really important and with which we engage people. And so, I think that a, a merciful, gracious, and um, patient—we
2: have to—we have to—we have to lead people to a knowledge of the truth. We have to know that we know the truth, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's not to our credit that we know the truth. And so we we don't lead people to the truth from a position of superiority, but from a humble recognition that uh, we're we've walked in their shoes. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, that we need to love people enough to give them the truth um, because we know who the truth is, Mm -hmm. that the truth is a person. Mm -hmm. His name is Jesus. And Mm -hmm. the best thing I can give to the person I love um, is the truth himself. Thanks, God. Jesus commands us to love the Lord our God with all our mind, but that's a challenge because the competition for our attention and perspective is fierce and never ending. To love our neighbor, we first have to love God with all our mind. Only a mind grounded in God's character and commands can love people well. So to that end, think better. Don't settle for slogans, confront the truth in all its complexity. Think broadly, search for the truth across the disciplines and through the ages. Think biblically, root your thoughts and view of the world in the revealed word of God. And think brotherly, let your love for others compel you to lead them towards Jesus with the truth. This has been a Faith and Culture Conversation, a ministry of Lake Ridge Bible Church. Special thanks to Jeremy Wilkerson for producing.